0: Welcome to the serialized audiobook Nocturnal by number 1 New York Times best-selling author Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti. This novel contains adult situations, violence, and is meant for mature audiences. Nocturnal is available in print, ebook, and unabridged ad-free audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com/nocturnal.
1: Chapter 31 Pookie's Pimpin' Gear We need your help, Alex, Pookie said. Can you think of anyone who would want to get back at you for anything? Pookie waited for an answer. He and Brian sat in chairs, while Alex Panos and his mother Susan sat on the couch across from them. A coffee table with a vase of fresh flowers separated the pairs. A pack of cigarettes and a box of Kleenex lay on the table in front of Susan, but she had yet to light up and seemed to favor the already well-used wad of tissue clutched in her hand. Alex wore jeans, black combat boots, and a brand-new crimson and gold Boston College Eagles jacket. He glared at the cops in his living room, his lip all but curled into a snarl. Susan Panos watched her son, her hands nervously working the wad of tissue now so ravaged and wet with tears that little shreds of it broke off to drift down lightly to the brown carpet below.
2: Alex, honey, she said. Can you answer the man?
1: Alex looked at his mother with the same expression of bored disdain he'd affixed on the cops. She dabbed her eyes. Please? Alex leaned back into the couch, his mouth making a little pfft sound. He crossed his arms over his chest. The kid was a real prize the kind that Pookie wished he could just shake some sense into. Alex was big enough that most people stayed out of his way, giving him an overly inflated sense of badassery. He was also young enough to think he was bulletproof. They sat in Susan's two-bedroom apartment on Union Street, just east of Hyde. It was a nice, sixth-floor place in a somewhat upscale ten-story building. Susan either had one very good job or two decent ones. Mr. Panos, if there had ever been one, wasn't around. He'd probably been a big guy. Susan was a skinny five-four, while 16-year-old Alex was just under 6 feet and thickly muscled. He was bigger than Brian. Give the kid another 3 or 4 months and he'd be bigger than Pookie. Pookie and Brian had first gone to Jay Pilar's place. Jay wasn't there. His father didn't know where he was. His father didn't want to talk to the cops. Quite the wonderful family scene, really. Isaac Moses was next on the list. But for now, Pookie and Brian had to deal with an uncooperative, arrogant Alex Panos. Alex didn't seem all that put out by his gangmate's death. Try to understand, Pookie said. This was a particularly brutal murder. You don't usually see this kind of thing unless there's motivation. Personal motivation. Have you guys had run-ins with other gangs? Latin Cobras? Anyone like that? I got nothing to say, Alex said. I'm a minor. And I haven't done anything, so I can tell you both to go and fuck yourselves. What do you think of that? Brian leaned forward. What do I think? I think your buddy's dead. Alex shrugged, looked away. So, Oscar wasn't tough enough. Not my problem. Hookie saw anger in the boy's eyes. Oscar's death clearly was Alex's problem. Alex probably thought he was going to find the killers himself. You don't get it, Brian said. Oscar's arm was ripped off his body. They cut his belly open, pulled out his intestines. Susan covered her mouth with the tissue.
2: Oh, my God.
1: Then they stuffed his guts back in, Brian said. They broke his jaw, knocked out his teeth. They tore out his right eye. Susan cried into her disintegrating Kleenex and started rocking back and forth. Alex tried and failed to look indifferent. There's more, Brian said. Pookie cleared his throat. Ah, <clears throat> uh, Brian, maybe we should. They pissed on him, Brian said. You hear me, Alex? They pissed all over your supposed friend. This wasn't a random act. Someone hated him. Tell us who hated him. Maybe we can find his killer. Alex stood, stared down with angry eyes. Are you guys arresting me? Pookie shook his head. Well, if you're not arresting me, I'm leaving. You should stay here, Pookie said. Whoever killed Oscar could be after all of you. You could be in danger. Alex let out that pfft sound again. I can take care of myself. Susan reached over and pulled lightly on the crimson sleeve of Alex's jacket.
2: Honey, maybe you should listen to— Fuck off, Mom!
1: Alex snapped his arm away. You like these pigs so much? Why don't you just blow them already? I'm gone. Alex walked to the door and slammed it shut behind him. Susan kept crying, kept rocking. Her shaking hand reached for the pack of cigarettes on the coffee table. Pookie automatically found the lighter in his pocket, pulled it out, and offered her the flame. He didn't smoke, but he'd made a lighter part of his standard pimpin' gear long ago. Dress nice, talk nice, buy drinks, and the ladies loved you. Amazing how a little act of kindness, like lighting a cigarette, could break the ice. Show a woman that you were interested. If you didn't mind kissing an ashtray, lighters got you laid. She took a drag, then set the tissue on the table. Pookie and Brian waited, quietly. Susan composed herself quickly. Quickly enough that Pookie could tell crying over Alex was a regular
2: occurrence. I'm sorry about him, she said. He's... Hard to control.
1: Yes, ma'am, Pookie said. Teenage boys can be difficult. I know I was. She sniffed, smiled, ran her fingers through her hair. Pookie knew that gesture as well, and it saddened him. Her son was in serious trouble. His friend had been murdered, and Susan Panos was still concerned about her looks. Were this some random night, were Pookie out for a beer instead of investigating a murder, he would have instantly put his chances of taking Susan Pano's home at about 75%.
2: "'I knew Oscar,' she said. "'He's been Alex's friend since they were in grade school. "'He was a good kid until—'
1: Her words trailed off. "'It had to be hard to know that a nice kid had traveled down the wrong path "'because he hung out with the wrong people, "'and that your son was among the wrong people in question.'
2: Mrs. Panos,
1: Hookie said, we know Alex is in a gang, a small one, but still a gang. Do you know anyone who would want to hurt your son and his friends? She sniffed, shook her head. Brian coughed, a wet, rattling thing. He grabbed two tissues from the table and wiped his mouth. How about payback, he said. How about any of the kids that Boyko victimized? Brian's words and tone were harsh and unforgiving. He clearly blamed Susan for letting Alex grow up to be such a flaming prick. Brian would feel like that. He grew up with a perfect family. Brian had lost his mom as a kid, but until she died, she'd loved him. His father still worshipped the ground he walked on. People from perfect families have a hard time understanding the concept that sometimes, no matter what parents do, some kids just go bad. Back in the day, Pookie had been heading down the same road as Alex. Pookie's parents were great, loving, attentive, supportive. But Pookie just grew too big too fast. He'd been a bully. He'd enjoyed the power. Enjoyed making other kids afraid of him. Right up until he screwed with the wrong guy and got his ass kicked. Seamus Jones. Who the hell names their kid Seamus? Apparently, it was akin to naming your boy Sue. Because once Pookie started in with Seamus... It turned out Seamus not only knew how to fight, he knew how to fight dirty. It was the first time Pookie had been beaten with a lead pipe. It also turned out to be the last. Broken ribs, a concussion, and a night in the hospital proved to be fantastic learning aids. Anyone? Brian said. Any of those kids your son beat up, any of them stand out? Susan took a drag on her cigarette, blew it out of the corner of her mouth away from Pookie and Brian. That strange, courtesy smokers seem to think helps. She picked up the wad of Kleenex. She shrugged.
2: Alex is just a boy. Boys get into fights.
1: Pookie pulled two fresh tissues out of the box on the table and offered them to Susan. She seemed to see the disintegrating wad in her hand for the first time. She put that in her pocket, then smiled as she took the fresh tissues. Mrs. Panos, Pookie said. Any information you could give us would help. Nothing is too trivial.
2: It's Susie, not Mrs. Panos. I haven't seen Alex's father in five years. Look, this isn't the first time cops have talked to me about my son, okay? He's a wild kid. Uncontrollable. Sometimes he's gone for days. Pookie
1: nodded. And when he is, where does he go? I don't know. Bullshit, Brian said. How can you not know? Ryan. Pookie held up a hand to cut him off. Not now. He turned back to Susie.
2: Ma'am, where does your son go? I told you, I don't know. He's got girlfriends. I've never met them, but I know he stays at their places. And no, I don't even know their names. I can't control that boy. He's too big, too mean. Sometimes he comes home when he needs money or food or clothes. The rest of the time. Look, I have to work two jobs, okay? Sometimes I pick up extra shifts. I'm gone 20 hours at a time. I gotta do it. We need the money. If Alex doesn't want to come home, I can't make him.
1: The herd in her eyes told the story. If he doesn't want to come home really meant if he doesn't love me. Brian stood. Fuck this. I'll wait outside. He left the apartment, slamming the door almost as loudly as Alex had. Susie stared at the door.
2: Your partner is an asshole,
1: she said. Sometimes, yeah. Pookie reached into his sport coat pocket, pulled out his card and offered it to her. Your son could be in real danger. If you see anything, hear anything, anything at all, let me know. She stared at him. Her eyes a window to the soul of a heartbroken single mother. She took the card.
2: Yeah, okay. I can text you at this number.
1: Pookie pulled out his cell phone and held it up. All calls and texts go right here. I never leave home without it. She sniffed, nodded, then put the card in her pocket.
2: Thank you, Inspector Chang.
1: Yes, ma'am. Pookie left the apartment. Brian was already downstairs, waiting in the Buick. We have to get to 8.50, he said as Pookie slid in. Captain Shero called. Right now? We still have to talk to Isaac Moses' parents. Yeah, right now, Brian said. Chief Sal wants to see us. Chapter 32 The Babushka Lady Aggie James sat on his thin mattress, pajama-clad arms around his pajama-clad knees. He was rocking back and forth a little bit, which he knew had to make him look nuts. But he didn't care because he couldn't help it. He wasn't high anymore. He still didn't know if what he had seen had been real. He figured he'd been down here for a day, maybe two, but it was hard to tell. In the white room, the lights always stayed on, and time had already lost meaning. The place still smelled of bleach. The chains had again drawn Aggie and the others back. Then a hooded, white-robed monster with a dark green demon face had rolled in a beat-up metal mop bucket. The thing had mopped up the long, bloody streaks left by the Mexican boy's clutching hands. The demon hadn't said a word, had ignored the Mexican parent's endless pleas. Once the mopping and bleaching were done, the white-robed demon left. There had been no visitors since. The collar was driving Aggie crazy. His skin chafed beneath it. The muscles and flesh sore from being dragged across the floor by his neck. The bottom edges of his jaw, both left and right, felt swollen and bruised to the bone. He needed a hit. That would make him feel better. So much better. Itchy tingling crawled up his arms and legs. His stomach felt pinched and nauseated. He'd have to shit real soon. Maybe whoever had taken him would let him get back on the streets and find what he needed. All he had for company was the Mexican couple. The woman barely talked. Sometimes she would cry. Most of the time she just sat against the wall, staring out into space. The husband tried to encourage her, his tone ringing with, Don't lose hope. Our son is still alive. But she either didn't hear him or just didn't care to respond. Sometimes, though, the woman would turn to the man, say something so quiet Aggie couldn't hear. Whenever she did, He would slowly walk as far from her as his chain and collar would permit. Then he would stand in that spot, still as a stone, just staring at the floor. For now they said nothing. The man sat on his ass. His wife was asleep, her head in his lap. He slowly stroked her hair. Aggie's stomach suddenly flip-flopped, a sour, acidic feeling that was like an internal alarm bell. He lurched off his mattress and crawled to the metal flange set in the white floor's center. His neck chain trailed behind him, the tinny sound bouncing off the stone walls. He pulled down his pajama bottoms as he turned and squatted over the hole. Cold shivers rolled over his skin. His body let go a blast of diarrhea. The wet, slapping sound echoed through the room. Cramps clutched his stomach. Sweat broke out on his forehead, bringing a wave of chills he had to put one hand on the ground to steady himself a three-point stance slash squat his naked ass hovering over the hole a second ripper tore out of him smaller than the first the cramps eased off just a bit
3: as a podcast network our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you but we also sell merch
0: And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Usted es repugnante, the Mexican man said. Was that Mexican for repugnant? The beaner's son had been taken by monster men and he was worried about poop. Go fuck yourself, Aggie said. If I didn't have these chains on, I'd beat your ass. Which was a total lie. The man looked like a construction worker, thin but with wiry muscles, and all them beaners knew how to box. Hard to box when you're chained up like an animal, though. Maybe the guy had to say something to someone. He'd lost his boy. You know that feeling, so cut him some slack. A metallic noise echoed from within the walls. Were the monster men coming back? Aggie grabbed a wad of toilet paper and quickly wiped himself, then pulled up his pajama pants and sprinted for the hole where his chain led into the wall. Another cramp hit hard like a fist in the gut. He turned and pressed his back to the white stone. When the chain yanked his collar tight, it only jerked him a little. The man and woman had been pulled back as well, dragged to their spots along the wall. Rage twisted the man's face. The woman's expression combined terror with sleepy confusion. The ringing of the chain retractor stopped. The white cage door opened. Aggie held his breath, expecting to see the white-robed demons come through. But instead, it was an old lady pushing a slightly rusted Safeway shopping cart. She rolled the cart into the white room, one wheel squeaking out a low, high-pitched rhythm. She was chubby and a bit hunched over. She shuffled along with short steps. A plain gray skirt covered her wide ass and hung down to her calves. She also wore a brown knit sweater, simple black shoes, and loose gray socks. A scarf, dirty yellow, printed with pink flowers, covered her head, leaving just her wrinkled face and a little of her gray hair exposed. She wore it like a babushka, tied under her chin so the two ends hung down past her breasts, She looked perfectly normal, like some old lady he might see waiting at a bus stop. She smelled of candles and old lotion. She stopped her squeaking Safeway cart a few feet away from him. Inside the cart, he saw Tupperware containers and sandwiches wrapped in clear plastic. She set a red-lidded container and one of the sandwiches on his mattress. She reached into the cart again. A juice box joined his lunch. She looked at him. Something about her deeply wrinkled face. Her deep-set, staring brown eyes made Aggie want to run, fast, to go anywhere his feet would carry him. She shuffled closer. Let me go, he said. Lady, just let me go. I won't tell no one. The old lady leaned forward and sniffed him. Her nose wrinkled, her eyes narrowed. She seemed to hold the sniff for a moment, think about it. Then she blew out a breath. She turned, waving a hand dismissively at him as if to say, You are not worth my time. She pushed the cart to the Mexicans. She left a container, a sandwich, and a juice box on each of their mattresses. She walked to the man, but stayed an inch or two out of kicking distance. She sniffed deeply, then shook her head. She turned toward the woman. The babushka lady sniffed again. She held it in. Then she smiled showing a mouthful of yellow mostly missing teeth. She nodded. She turned and pushed her squeaky cart out of the cell. She slammed the white painted door shut behind her. The chains relaxed. Withdrawal made Aggie feel like shit. But he grabbed the sandwich and tore off the wrapper. He wasn't worried about poison. If they were going to kill him, they would have done it already. He bit off a big chunk. The welcome tastes of ham, Cheese and mayo danced across his tongue. He opened the Tupperware container. Hot, steaming brown chili that smelled beefy and delicious. His stomach pinched hard, and he set the food down. He already had to shit again. Chapter 33 Golden Shower Puki Chang sat in a chair in front of Chief Amy Zhao's desk patiently counting the minutes until he could text polyester-rich Verdi a detailed variation on You are my bitch. That would be a brief moment of joy in an otherwise messed-up situation. Brian sat on Pookie's right, slumped in his chair, a withdrawn ghost of himself. They'd been in the same spot just over twenty-four hours ago. One day later and their world had changed. Once again, Chief Zhao sat behind her immaculate desk, and once again in the center of that blank desk sat a manila folder. Nothing else except for the three-panel picture frame showing her family. Assistant Chief Sean Robertson stood on the chief's immediate left, almost like he was waiting for her to get up and go to the bathroom so he could sit down and take over. He also held a manila folder. To the right of Zhao's desk, Captain Jesse Sharrow sat in a chair against the wall. He, too, had a matching folder in his lap. Whatever the hell was going on, it was clear that Zhao, Robertson, and Sharrow were all using the same playbook. Sharrow set Ramrod straight. He definitely had something on his mind, something that didn't make him happy. Even his usually immaculate blues looked a tad rumbled. Chief Zhao opened her folder. Pookie saw what was inside, his case report on the Oscar Woody killing from that morning. She flipped through it. She looked up at Pookie.
2: It says here you two were just
1: driving by. Pookie nodded. Yes, Chief, we were just driving by. Brian, uh, saw the blanket, so we stopped. She stared at him, stared long enough for it to become uncomfortable.
2: So you just stopped, she said, for what looked like a homeless man in an alley. I didn't know you were such a humanitarian, Chang. I smelled it,
1: Brian said quietly.
2: God damn it, Brian,
1: shut the fuck up. Sal turned her stare on Brian. You smelled what, Clouser? Brian rubbed his eyes. I... I smelled something. Something that... You're in, Chief, Pookie said. He flashed Brian a glance. Brian blinked, then leaned back in his chair. He got the message. Let Pookie do the talking. Pookie didn't want Brian to say another word. If the guy slipped up and mentioned his dreams, he'd be screwed. We were at the Paul Maloney scene, Hookie said. We smelled urine there. When Brian smelled urine at Meacham Place and we saw what looked like a prone guy under a blanket, we just stopped. Call it cop instincts. Zhao again looked at the case report. She probably just wanted to get everyone on the same page. Oscar was a kid, his murder particularly brutal, and that meant the media was all over it. The Chronicle had already done a special edition. Oscar's high school photos stared out from newspaper racks all over the city. Oscar's body had been pissed on, as had Maloney's. If word of that connection ever got out, the case would turn into a media circus. Of course, Pookie was banking on that connection. He and Brian had been first on the scene for Oscar. Zhao would connect the two cases and give them both to her best team, which meant Polyester Rich could go fuck himself with a cactus. Chief Zhao kept reading. She seemed to be staring at the crime scene photos for too long. Pookie glanced at Robertson. Robertson had the report open to the same page. He was staring intently at it, his gray glasses halfway down his nose. And Sharrow as well. The report open on his lap, his bushy, wide-eyebrowed eyes focused on the blood symbol. The way they all stared, so intently. It was spooky. Chief Zhao looked up.
2: Who have you talked to so far?
1: We canvassed the area, Pookie said. We couldn't find anyone who saw or heard anything that night. We talked to Kyle Soler, principal at Galileo High, where Oscar attended. We tried to speak with Oscar's parents, but they're too upset to talk about it yet. Zhao's eyes flicked to the framed picture of her twin girls.
2: I can only imagine how they must feel right now.
1: Pookie nodded. They were pretty shook up. We also talked to Alex Panos, who runs Boyko, the gang Oscar was in, and Alex's mother, Susan. We still need to talk to Isaac Moses and Jay Perlar, the other gang members. Zell pulled three photos from the folder and set them side by side in a neat row above the report. Pookie had included the photos from Black Mr. Burns' gang database. Once again, he looked at the details, memorizing the faces. Jay Perlar with his scraggly red goatee, Isaac Moses with his crooked nose and blue eyes the blonde hair and arrogant sneer of Alex Panos. Zhao nodded, looked at the report.
2: And these symbols, Inspector Chang, What have you found about those?
1: Shiro and Robertson both looked up from their reports. They stared at him. Pookie felt like a lab rat with three scientists waiting to see how he would react to new stimuli. Uh, we searched the RSS database, he said.
2: It came up with nothing. Nothing? Zhao said, Nothing at all. Nothing local,
1: I mean. She nodded, three heads again bent to look at the report, at the symbols. He'd been joking about cop instincts earlier, but they were real. They suddenly lit up like his own version of Spidey Sense. There had been information about those symbols in the system, but that information had been deleted. Zhao, Robertson and Shero probably had the access privileges to do just that. At this point, it was best not to let on that Black Mr. Burns was still digging deeper. But John's name was already in the report. If Pookie didn't at least mention John's work, Zhao might call him to the office next. There was one hit, Pookie said. A serial killer from New York, but that case has been closed for 20 years. We showed the symbol around the neighborhood where Oscar was killed. No one has seen it before. John Smith in the gang task force said it wasn't associated with any local gangs. In short, we couldn't find shit. Zhao leaned back, ever so slightly. Had that information made her relax? Just a little? You didn't find anything else. Pookie shook his head. Zhao looked at Brian. How about you, Klausa, anything to add? Brian also shook his head. She stared at him until the air again became uncomfortable, but Brian didn't look away. Finally, Zhao looked back down to the report. Pookie waited. Zhao was meticulous, sure, but she had a flair for quiet drama. Assistant Chief Robertson also waited, his folder open in his hands, his eyes fixed on Zhao. Pookie glanced at Sharrow. The white-haired captain had closed his folder. He held it in both hands. The folder trembled slightly. He still sat Ramrod straight, but his eyes were closed. What the hell was going on? Zhao looked up. The
2: urine, she said. Similar emo to Paul Maloney. Murder, mutilated body, the perps urinated on the corpse. Inspector Chang, do you think the two are connected?
1: Pookie nodded. I bet my ball's on it, chief. It can't be a copycat because the news didn't report that someone gave Father Paul a golden shower. Her eyebrows rose. Sorry, Pookie said. I mean, urinated on the deceased, of course. She shut the folder and looked up. I agree, she said. The two cases are related.
2: Give all your information and contacts to Rich Verdi and Bobby Pigeon.
1: No, he had not just heard that correctly. Chief! Pookie said.
2: Shouldn't they be giving their info on Maloney to us? Did I stutter? You guys are off the case. But chief, we were first on the scene.
1: Robertson closed his folder with an audible snap. Just give Verdi your information, Pookie. Not only were they not getting the Maloney gig, but now Verdi would have a case that Brian was somehow connected to. Verdi was an asshole, sure, but he was good at the job. He would dig and dig hard if he found info that could tie Brian to this. Pookie could not let the man get this case. Chief, Pookie said, Oscar Woody is ours. We found him. We were first on the scene. Birdman just came over from Vice. He's seen, what, four murder cases? Captain Sharrow stood. He held his folder at his side. His hands had stopped shaking. Knock it off, Chang, he said. Pigeon is good. And Verdi was busting murderers when you were still in diapers. But Cap, we want this case. Chief Zhao straightened the report, making sure it paralleled the desk's edges.
2: Inspector Chang, that's enough. But Chief, you... Done,
1: she said, slicing her hands sideways like a knife through air.
2: Chang, this time you are going to listen and obey. This isn't going to be another Blake Johansson situation.
1: She was bringing
2: that up? And by Blake Johansson's
1: situation, you mean the dirty cop that I uncovered, right? You were told to leave that case alone,
2: Zhao said. You were told that internal affairs would handle it, but you wouldn't listen. John Smith almost died as a result, and his career has never been the same.
1: She glanced at Brian.
2: Blake Johansson did die.
1: Pookie ground his teeth, trying to keep quiet. Internal affairs had seemed to be part of Johansson's payoff chain. They ignored Johansen, just as Johansen ignored the gangs who paid him off. Pookie had gone for the bust. It wasn't his fault that Johansen decided to shoot it out instead of going quietly. At least that's what Pookie told himself every time he saw Black Mister Burns stuck behind a desk instead of out chasing perps. Inspector Chang,
2: this time you will listen," Zhao said. "My orders are not open to debate. Go see Verdi and Pigeon. Give them everything you have." If that principal you talk to finds anything, he is to call them, not you. She turned her stare on Brian. And you, Klauser, let me hear it. Let me hear you understand that you guys are off this case.
1: Brian stared back at her. Other than the fact that he looked like he might vomit at any moment, his eyes showed nothing. We're off the case, he said. Our ears work just fine. Zhao nodded once.
2: Good day, gentlemen.
1: Brian walked out of the office. Pookie started to follow him. This didn't make sense. Even if Verdi and the Birdman ran both cases, Pookie and Brian should have been assigned to support them, not booted to the curb altogether. Did Zhao know something Pookie did not? Maybe something about Brian's dreams. The thought made him stop and turn. He looked back, but Captain Shero, Chief Zhao and Assistant Chief Sean Robertson didn't notice him doing it. They had their folders open again. All three of them were staring at the symbols.
0: You have been listening to Nocturnal by Scott Sigler, performed by Phil Giganti. Produced by Empty Set Entertainment. The Nocturnal audiobook was directed and engineered by Corey Young. Every five minutes, a transplant candidate dies while waiting for a compatible heart, liver, or kidney. Imagine a technology that could provide those life-saving transplant organs for a high price and imagine what a company would do to monopolize that technology.